Mercantilism and the Navigation System Mercantilism was not a carefully elaborated economic theory, but it was policymakers' aim of guaranteeing prosperity by making their own country as self-sufficient as possible, by eliminating dependence on foreign suppliers, and damaging foreign competitors' commercial interests. Mercantilism is named after the system was created. To increase a nation's wealth in gold and silver, that means all subjects, not just the royal treasury, they needed a favorable balance of trade. To sell more goods abroad than they brought from foreigners, in other words, to export more than they imported. England begins to look at its colonies as a way to increase their self-sufficiency, so a lucrative trade develops between England and its far-flung outposts. English officials realize that the colonies could make important contribution contributions to England's economic well-being. They wanted a series of laws that would confine the profit of colonial trade primarily to the mother country. They accomplished this through a series of laws known collectively as the Navigation Acts. The first Navigation Act was passed in 1651 and was designed to block all colonial trade with the Dutch. Parliament wanted to make London the center of commerce. The cornerstone of the navigation system was passed in 1660, the Navigation Act of 1660. This law required that a master and three-quarter of the crew of a merchant ship had to be English. There was also an enumeration clause or list that stipulated that all listed products could only be shipped to England or another English colony. Listed products included sugar, tobacco, cotton, and indigo. If you think about this particular law, considered Consider how England would benefit from it and how the colonies would benefit. Sugar had to be refined, tobacco had to be cut and rolled for use, cotton had to be spun, woven, and dyed. This promotes the first period of industrialization in England. Once tobacco was cured, it had to be rolled into cigars or chopped for pipe smoking or further pulverized for snuff which meant that there needed to be cigar factories, match factories, pipe factories, pipe cleaner factories, you get the idea. Asking for ships' crews to be captained and manned by Englishmen also made sense in terms of loyalty and creation of jobs for merchant seamen. The colonies were guaranteed a place to sell their product. This was working, and this law was obeyed. A second key law in the navigation system was the Staple Act of 1663. This law required that all goods from Europe bound for the colonies had to stop in England first, where there would be custom duties imposed on it, and that every ship entering the colonies had to prove that the goods had been loaded in England. After that point, that 1663, additional laws were created to plug in loopholes. Passed in 1673, the Plantation Duty Act's purpose was to regulate trade and customs agents were sent to the colonies to enforce the Navigation Acts and collect duties. To prevent fraud, the Navigation Act of 1696 created the Board of Trade and Plantations and was responsible for registering ships, established a court system to check illicit trade, supervised trade policies, examined laws passed by colonial assemblies, and subjected colonial governors to royal approval. Again these laws were obeyed. The Woolen Act of 1699 and the Hat Act of 1732, yes, hats as in you wear on your head, 
These were designed to prevent the export or intercolonial trade of woolen textiles and hats. Remember that the British had an empire to consider and the wool textile and hat industry in Scotland and Ireland to OPs. Colonists could manufacture their own woolen textiles and hats, but could not sell them in different colonies or send them to England for sale. This tells us that the colonies were manufacturing items for themselves. These laws were partially obeyed. I mean, it's kind of hard to stop socks being manufactured in Massachusetts and sold in, you know, Rhode Island, for example. The Molasses Act of 1733 and the Iron Act of 1750 were a different story. Both of these laws were extensively violated. The Molasses Act cut American imports of molasses from the French West Indies. Molasses is essential to the making of rum, and it was the cheapest from the French colonies. French molasses was cheaper because they used slave labor differently than in the British colonies. The French sugar islands in the Caribbean, for example, imported mostly male slaves and worked them to death on a sugar plantation, which made their sugar ultimately cheaper. Rum was an essential part of the slave trade in the colonial period. Slave ships on the west coast of Africa exchanged barrels of rum for human cargo. The Iron Act was designed to prevent the colonial manufacturing of finished iron products. Iron ore and potash were in great abundance in the colonies, and there was little that the British officials could do to halt the colonists from making their own nails, hinges, weapons, utensils, wagons, parts, etc. from iron. Why were the earlier laws obeyed, or mostly obeyed, and the last two extensively violated? That's a good question. The British did not have enough customs agents to monitor all aspects of the economic life of the colonists. The system also depended on salutary neglect, sometimes called benign rule. This concept rested on the belief that the best way to govern a country or an empire during good times was to govern as little as possible. The time period under question were largely good times, so customs agents, who were low-ranking government bureaucrats, were willing to overlook minor infractions of the laws, often for a slight fee or <coughs> bribe. It was one way for them to supplement their incomes and made it possible for the colonists to continue to import French molasses. This worked as long as times were good and there was no war. The, uh, if we look at the South Atlantic trade system, the cornerstone of that was sugar, which came from Brazil and the West Indies. Um, the, this also included products including tobacco, rice, and indigo from the North American mainland. England will end up planting more sugar, and they were doing this to meet the growing world demand for sugar. In 1650, for example, they developed Barbados specifically as a sugar colony. With the West Indies trade, American flour, lumber, fish, manufactured goods went to the West Indies, and the West Indies supplied molasses and sugar to the North American colonies. And the North American colonies distilled that molasses into rum, and the rum was shipped to Africa and traded for slaves. Um, some of that molasses and sugar also went to England. And so there, you've got all of these uh, all of these things combined together, which clearly demonstrates that the colonists ultimately benefited a great deal from the navigation system. 
As members of the British Empire, they were protected by the world's largest navy, had access to a large free trade area. It encouraged economic diversity in the colonies, had, they had easy credit and cheap manufacturers, and it restricted foreign competition. England benefited from using the colonies to enable them to export more than they imported and gained industry and wealth as well. But alas, this benign neglect was not to last. In the 1760s, there begins to be more active interference of colonial trade, particularly after the French and Indian War. And thus, that ends this discussion on mercantilism and the navigation system. Thank you.